This is the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm Ian Stasikevich, contributing writer for American Cinematographer Magazine. In this installment, we'll take a look back at the 1982 film Poltergeist as cinematographer Matthew Leonetti and visual effects supervisor Richard Edland discuss their work on this seminal effects motion picture. I got the idea to do these interviews after I spoke with Mr. Leonetti for a story in the magazine. I needed some information on the making of the film. I went to the magazine archives to research the movie and found out that we never did a story on it. Now, Poltergeist is the kind of movie where if you haven't seen it, you've at least heard of it. So it seemed to be the perfect subject for a kind of retrospective piece. I spoke with Mr. Leonetti by phone and with Mr. Edland at his offices in Santa Monica, California. Before Poltergeist, Matthew Leonetti was known primarily as a television cinematographer, but he also had a few feature films under his belt. Some of the ones you might remember are Breaking Away, Raise the Titanic, and Eyewitness. I shot a picture called Eyewitness um, in 1980. It came out in 81, and I guess Steven Spielberg saw the movie, and they called me and asked me to come in and interview for Poltergeist. And um, I, I think they were trying to put together some, some younger type people who hadn't gotten there yet as far as the, you know, behind-the-camera people. Poltergeist was a pretty big deal for everyone involved. For Leonetti, it was his first A-list project. For Richard Edland, who'd been a cameraman on Star Wars and was the visual effects supervisor for The Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark, it posed a very different sort of visual effects challenge. Poltergeist was, was really a difficult project because it was happening in the house next door. I mean, it, in other words, it was like it was like so mainstream America that you know, it, 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 you what we did had to look real and can be convincing to an audience that is looking at their own living room. You know, the the first thing we started shooting was was the exteriors, and and it was it was a night shoot for couple three weeks or four weeks something like that out in in Simi Valley where we proceeded to destroy this poor person's house and uh, shoot all the all the exterior and then meanwhile at MGM Jim Spencer the production designer was building up on a on, on like about a t about 10 feet off the ground they built a platform and then the house basically was uh, was built i mean the whole house including the stairway and all that stuff the shot of the stairway uh the uh, people sleeping in the living room and all that was shot on the set i mean it was all blown up so i mean the 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 rooms were like half again as big as they actually were and and you, you almost always do that you expand the rooms so that you have room for the camera and and so on, and you can you can close things in with the lens if you want. Because ninety percent of the movie takes place on the stage. We were working on a set ten of the ten of the twelve weeks. Uh, the only time we were inside the house is when we were in the kitchen looking out, when they were you know digging with a big tractor. Any other times where we looked outside to see the hills and all those kind, all that background. And the rest of it was uh, on a stage. If you haven't seen the film yet. And if you haven't, you might want to stop listening now because we'll be spoiling some of the best parts. Poltergeist is the story of the Freelings, a normal all-American family living in a freshly minted neighborhood of tract homes. Parents Steve and Diane, played by Craig T. Nelson and Joe Beth Williams, are your average middle-class suburbanites with three average children, Dana, Robbie, and the youngest, Carol Ann. 
For the first 20 minutes of the movie, we follow the Freelings as they go about their relatively mundane business. School, work, eating, reading, watching TV. Early on, there are hints of the hauntings to come. An ominous storm front rolls in. A glass spontaneously shatters at the breakfast table. Or Carol Ann talks to the television when there's nothing on it. When they're out in the backyard or in the kitchen and, you know, having breakfast. We were trying to keep it just normal, everyday photography. So that when the, the time came for things to really blow wide open, we, uh, we had an opportunity to change that and make it uh, pretty dramatic in, in, in a lot of the scenes. So that the lighting and the way the camera moves and the, and, the, and the angles were more dramatic when it was time to be dramatic. But at the beginning of the film, it's pretty generic. You never think, you know, anything was going to happen. And that was the intention, of course. It was so simple in the sense of shooting. And not simple, simple, but, you know, we, it was simply done, quote, but it wasn't simply done, you know. It had a, if you just look at it, the camera sets and the people, like, there's a lot of one takes in it, you know. Not very many cut, a lot of scenes have cuts in them. If you look at it, the camera sets and a lot of acting takes place in front of the camera and you don't move it. Leonetti wanted to shoot the film with his own equipment, so he brought in the custom 35mm camera system he built with his father just a few years before. My dad and I decided in um, 1977, 78, 77, I guess, we wanted to build our own camera because at the time you couldn't and you still can't uh, buy a Panavision camera and the Aeroflex cameras were a little bit noisy. So we decided to build our own camera and we called it the UltraCam. And uh, we built about, what, 17, 18 of them. And uh, decided, you know, we want to try to make it a very silent you know, camera, which we did, and uh, try to make it as light as possible. And we used the old, uh, we copied, uh, didn't copy, but took the old uh, 20th Century Fox camera movement with single pull-down, single claw pull-down. But the camera's quite steady. Uh, as you can see, they couldn't have done some of these visual effects if the camera wasn't uh, really, you know, steady. And we used... Uh, Cinevision anamorphic lenses that uh, we purchased from a, a man in Italy for the show. So we have, uh, you know, we have three or four sets of those. I think they're quite sharp, actually. In 1982, cinematographers didn't have a lot of options when it came to choosing the speed of their film. Kodak and Fuji each had just one stock on the market. We were the, high, the, the speed of the film was 100 ASA. I think it was 5247. And I pushed it a stop. The whole movie's pushed one stop. And we were shooting at 75-foot cameras the whole film. I mean, if we were shooting at key, if it wasn't, you know, meant to be dark or anything like that. And we were shooting about 3.5 because we shot the movie in anamorphic. You know, I like to have a little depth of field because of anamorphic, you, you know, your wide lens is a 40, so when you, you know, if you get down around 2, 2, 3, you really don't have much depth, and I don't feel it has a natural feel to it. it things start to fall off too fast. But yeah, it was a 100 ASA film, but we pushed it to stop and really pushed it to about 175 ASA. I treated it under 75 ASA, not 200. Even in those first 20 minutes of normal, everyday photography, Poltergeist exhibits a definitive photographic style. Leonetti used strong, hard lighting for much of the movie. It's easier to control hard light. I would say it's not entirely hard light. I mean, the fill light was all bounce light. You know, it was soft light. Uh, sometimes... Uh, in the bedrooms, you know, it was it was softer light, but not so soft like uh, is used today a lot. I think the hard light has a tendency to make things a little crisper and richer. It makes it a little makes films a little sharper too. But I, I believe that the 
the harsher shadows have a tendency to have a little bit more dramatic feel to them as opposed to the softer shadows. It's all subliminal, but but it is there. We really used just source lighting, taking the, if it's daytime, we took advantage of the windows as being the source. Again, it's source lighting, but natural, very natural looking. And then when it came time to um, to be dramatic, all the rules were broken. You know, you just do whatever looks good. <laughs> My way of saying breaking the rules. As the story progresses and the ghosts become more aggressive, source lighting becomes less important, and the film takes on a more stylized look. One of my favorite lighting cues comes after the scene where the paranormal investigators hired by the Freelings encounter the spirits for the first time. It's a scene between Beatrice Strait's Dr. Lesh and Diane and Robbie Freeling. They're in the living room and it's very dark. She tells them that some people believe when you die, there's a wonderful light as bright as the sun, but it doesn't hurt to look into it. And all of the answers to all of the questions you want to know are inside that light. And when you walk into it, you become a part of it forever. At one point, Dr. Lesh leans forward, and suddenly her face is bathed in a pool of light. We did that on purpose, just to give her like a, you know, a, a feel of she's in the spotlight telling the story. They used to do that with actresses. You know, they may, used to make them hit a mark. You cut a hole like in a card, and you put the light practically right over the camera, and she just hits it. It's like a little spotlight, you know, Joan Crawford trick, I guess they used to call it. Leonetti and the special effects crew employed a number of in-camera tricks to rival the film's most stunning visual effects work. In the memorable scene where Carol Ann announces to her stunned parents, they're here, nothing more than off-the-shelf strobe lights were used to simulate the glow of a flickering television filling their bedroom. And for two frighteningly effective scenes, two bedroom sets were mounted to a rotating gimbal. The first scene is the one where Carol Ann is abducted by the malevolent spirits and sucked through a portal in her closet. The other is where unseen forces violently drag Diane across the walls and ceiling of her bedroom. The room turned, and, and she would just crawl along the wall, but she was always on the floor, never on the walls or the ceiling, because the room turned, and the camera was locked off. So it makes her look like she's climbing the, the walls and the ceiling. First we did it, we mounted the camera. We actually operated one shot, but it became very, very difficult for the camera operator to go upside down and pan the camera. So after that, we tied the camera off, and then we built the kids' bedroom on the gimbal. That's how we got all the clothes and the beds and everything to go into the closet. Just everything slid into it. In that same scene, as with the television flicker, Leonetti chose a surprisingly non-intellectual approach to create the white-hot light emanating from the closet. That we took and put about, I don't know, probably 100 number two photo floods in there. It looks like a regular household bulb, but it's 500 watts, and just turned them up. And, and we just put them, we just screwed a bunch of bulbs on a board and put a bunch of, you know, lined them up. We didn't even read it. We just let it, I have no idea how much light was in there. You remember that wonderful light Dr. Lesh was talking about? Steve and Diane, with the help of Tangina Behrens, a medium played by actress Zelda Rubenstein, devise a plan to rescue their daughter by coaxing her towards that light and pulling her through what's referred to as a bilocation point in their living room. The only way the Freelings can reach Carol Ann is to enter the portal in her bedroom. And when they open the door, they find the room filled with an intense, otherworldly light coming from, where else? The closet. They ask us to come up with some way to create these shafts of light or some effect that would make it look, you know, moving ghost or or whatever you want to describe it as. But anyway, what we did was we took a couple of 2,500-watt 
HMI spotlights at the time. And we put a wheel in front of them and created a shutter effect. And we could vary the speed of the wheel with a dimmer so that the, the shafts weren't consistent. There was some talk about trying to do it with a like a projector, but it's not near bright enough. So that was one effect. That's how we created that strobing effect on the walls. We took a couple other 2,500 watt, I believe it's 2,500 watt, yeah, HMIs, because it was all blue light in there. And we took some boards, like two feet by two feet, and we put little pieces of uh, mirror on springs, and we glued those to a board, two foot by two foot board, and we'd hit the spotlight into that board with all the mirrors, and we'd flick the mirror, flick the board with our fingers. And that would create those moving, small moving shafts, like square shafts going through the room. So that was all done in camera. It wasn't done with visual effects. There's no way the story of Poltergeist could be told without the use of visual effects. And that's where visual effects supervisor Richard Edlund and Industrial Light and Magic enter the picture. The visual effects supervisor is the connection between the director and the vast crew of artists and technicians, probably most intimately with the cinematographer that uh, carry out the visual effects for a movie. You know, they have their needs, right, uh, to create the effect. Uh, naturally, everybody has some idea what the effect's going to be before you do it. We had some storyboards to work off of. And then Richard would, you know, say, here's what I need to create this, and here's the re we, we want a residual effect on the actors or on the set. we provide it, and then later on he would, uh, he would put in, uh, you know, like the ghosts and the monsters or, or whatever effects they wanted. Edlund was on set for much of the principal photography, but the bulk of his work wouldn't get started until after production had wrapped. Even then, the techniques in play were largely dependent on experimentation. As a result, the filmmakers themselves, let alone the actors, sometimes didn't quite know what they were looking at while they were shooting. One example of this is the bilocation effect. But we knew what generally they're going to do. You know, we didn't know exactly what they're going to do. They do things in post you never even think they're going to do when you shoot the movie. When one of those uh, fellows, uh, you know, or the photographers came down and, and wanted to tennis, watch the tennis ball come out of the ceiling, we put we put some strobes in the living room, not knowing exactly what they were going to do, but we know it's going to be some sort of a strobish effect. All of the all the light effects that are so important to making something like this work were figured out on the set as we went along. And I'll I'll make an example of the of the ghost coming down the stairways because I think it's one of my favorite. It's like one of the that and the an imploding house are the signature shots of the movie. To, to make this shot really eerie and weird, I felt that a good idea would be to have a, gri have a grip up on the green light. We would leave the ceiling out, and we would later paint that in. And basically, he would be moving this light down the stairway at about chest height of the little ghost that we were going to put in there, which we didn't really know what it was going to look like, but I pitched the idea to Stephen that if this was like a self-illuminating ghost, and she would cast a shadow that would make the the scene really eerie. I think it's a 5K or 10K open globe. The open globe gives you a very harsh shadow. It's even harsher than a Fresnel lens. And then we obviously overexposed it a little bit. It got a little bright. It looked like about a stopover. Maybe a little more to stop. And Richard put his tricks in uh, after we got through. 
The ghost was ultimately conceived as a graceful, ethereal spirit portrayed by actress Paula Paulson. Hanging from wires, her movements were photographed on 16mm film at 500 frames per second, blown up to VistaVision, and then printed in reverse. It was a process fraught with trial and error, and it also required a very specific set of skills. The visual effects supervisor of yesterday, of the photochemical era, uh, had to be a master of the photographic process. And, and, and that also not only meant the camera, the film, and, the, and the, all this and that, it, it also has to do with camera placement, motion blur, all of the, all of the artifacts of, of, of uh, 24 frame a second photography, and how you can play with those aspects of the medium in order to make your shot work. And I was really good at it because I really understood the photographic process and how to trick it, you know, and, and how to use the different elements and use underexposed, overdeveloped, you know, to, to um, control the size of the mats and all that kind of stuff. Because we were all always trying to figure out how we were going to get away with something. On Poltergeist, I had Rick Fichter, great cinematographer, Bill Neal, uh, Neil Crepola. All these guys are like photographic masterminds. And when we get together and start talking stuff over, Scott Farrar, you know, I mean, all these guys, I mean, uh, you know, um, they're, they really understood the process. And, and, and basically, if they didn't, they weren't going to cut it. See, the, the whole thing about uh, analog thinking is that it allows for serendipity. And serendipity is the reason why Kubrick would run the actors through a scene for a hundred takes. Because he was waiting for that serendipity to happen. And, and if it didn't happen, he'd say, okay, let's have it again. Until it happened. And then all of a sudden you'd get this magical thing would happen and that would be the take. I mean, the, the thing about computer animation is that everything that happens has to be intellectually inserted. So it's very difficult for serendipitous performance to occur because, the, because you have to intellectualize that serendipitous blip. One of Poltergeist's many serendipitous blips is the optical effect that was ultimately devised for the bilocation point in the Freelands living room. The shape of this flash of light that shoots out basically is happening on a, uh, it's a sheet of laser light that, that is being interrupted by, by smoke. And you're photographing that. And, and, and basically it's red when you're photographing it, but you're, you, you make a black and white separation and you want it to be green, you know, when you optical it in. But you do that a dozen times and you pick the one that looks the coolest. Whether you're dealing with computers or the real thing, there's really nothing as unpredictable as water, which is what might make cloud tank effects the coolest of all special effects. We had built a, a, a seven-foot square by five-foot high cloud tank out of like two-and-a-half-inch thick glass that enabled us to do effects in water. What you do in the cloud tank is you fill the tank half full of salt water, and then you put a piece of... Uh, um, plastic on the surface, and then you fill the rest of the tank with fresh water, which, and then you carefully roll up the plastic, and what you have then is like a soft inversion layer that's flat, and then you squirt tempera paint on over the surface of that, 
and it rolls very slowly across the surface, and that's how you create clouds. Edlund and his team didn't just use the tank for making clouds. They created a water funnel in it for the freak tornado that touches down in the Freeland's backyard. And when it uproots the backyard's killer tree and sucks it into the sky, the eye of the storm is simply the camera looking down into the funnel. Then there was the, the beast at the top of the stairway. And, uh, and that was when Joe Beth is up there, you know, leave my baby alone or whatever. I forgot her line, you know. And all of a sudden this huge beast comes out. And the thing is that the uh, model shop had built this beast, but it was too wide to fit in the room. So I basically, I took my Technorama anamorphic lens and turned it on its side and squeezed it down horizontally by a third, approximately. And, uh, and so basically it turned out to be this tall, skinny thing, which looked cool. And that was shot in a cloud tank in order to get the, the hair to flow off. And, and so we shot in water. For the big finale, the ghosts make a last-ditch attempt to retake Carol Ann by sucking the entire house into the portal. It's an effect that's been parodied and referenced and imitated in countless ways. Certainly nothing like it had ever been seen before. The house next door imploding brick by brick, plank by plank, contents and all, slowly into itself until there's nothing left. We have this incredible model shop with, with these very talented guys that have all kinds of great ideas. And, and, and any, any visual effects project is, is, like any movie, an incredible amount of collaboration and depending on different other people to, to get out of the corner that we've painted ourselves in or whatever. Running through the script, I come up to this st the sentence, and the house implodes. Now, I, I told Frank Marshall, who's the producer on the show, I said, you know, Frank, this is a $250,000 sentence here. You know, he says, what? And I said, it, it says implode, not explode. Exploding is easy. Imploding is something else. It was, uh, first of all, a matter of figuring out exactly how we're going to do it. We basically decided that we were going to come up with a material that would break up in a, in a, in a way similar to how drywall would break up in, in, in normal building materials and two-by-fours and whatever houses are being built of. And then we're going to build the house out of these. We're going to make t do tests to make sure that it, it all pulls apart in the way that we want it to do. Then we're going to build the house in such a way that it has pull, it has pull points everywhere. And, and I, there must have been, I don't know how many wires, a hundred, hundred piano wires that pulled down into a, into a knot at the, t at the base of the house. And, and so this knot had a big, ring in it the ring was attached to a cable and the cable went through a uh, went down around a pulley which was attached to a forklift and and the, the entire rig the house was built on its it was on its back and there was like a funnel made out of shiny um, formica a four-sided tunnel and it had a hole at the base that was about uh, five by seven inches, as I remember. And so all of these wires are pulled down. Then the base is a pipe rig that's sitting on the floor of the stage. And, and it's all braced off. And, and all of the lighting equipment is, is attached as part of that system, right? 
So it's lit, and we and it's like 10,000 foot candles because we were shooting at 270 frames a second, and we had to have enough depth of field to cover it. So we had a relatively wide-angle lens. I think it was like a 35 or a, I think a 35-millimeter lens that we photographed it with. By this time, we had Fuji 250 speed. But even with 250 speed, we needed a lot of light. So the camera is then, it's like a, two, a Photosonics 4E camera that's set up, to, I had set it up to run 240 frames a second. All of this, this rig weighed quite a bit, right? It was like, roll the camera, and, 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 and then it was like, okay, go, and then the forklift takes off and pulls this entire rig, like, three or four feet down the stage because the whole, I mean, the forklift was actually dragging everything along with it. The camera, everything was, everything was attached to this humongous pipe rig. By the way, I had on one side, I am with my Purdy shotgun. <laughs> I had a couple of fancy English shotguns uh, on both sides. I forgot, it might have been Gene Whiteman or the machine shop guy, or Thane Morris, maybe. I think it was Thane. So Thane, I think, was on one side, and I'm on the other side with a shotgun just to give it a, give with a light load, you know, so if we saw it clumping up, we could, we could, we could help it along. And we had to lay our, hit the shotguns a couple of times, you know, just to help it along. And then, well, I just pulled it right through. Pulled the whole house right through the hole. I thought that the, sh that, the, that the scene was like underexposed about a stop. And I wanted to do another take on it. But that would have been another 50 grand. With the miniature element of the shot completed, there was still more work to be done to properly composite the footage with the fore and background plates. There was a girl, Ellen, I forgot her last name, Lichtward, I think. Anyway, I, I, she spent like two months rotoing all of the pieces because it was a rotoscope job. We couldn't shoot at blue screen. So she had to rotoscope all those pieces as, they, as they're being pulled down so that we could get a map because what we had to do then, now that we have taken this house and, and pulled it apart, first of all, the house was lined up to the actual plate. What we had to do to start out with is we shot the plates of Jimmy Karen. And then we, we have this explosion of light, this, this yellow light that comes and it knocks Jimmy over. And uh, there was a yellow light effect on the, on the street. And then we cut to the shot of the house. And, and basically what we did is we shot a plate of the house, then painted the house out and painted the backyard in. And then we matted the, the house that we were going to blow, we were going to suck away onto that painting. And then the painting had to appear through all this rotoscoping. To do the whole shot, it took like months. Because it was like one of our, it was like the money shot for the movie. Now I know what some of you might be thinking, and I was definitely thinking it too. So I asked Mr. Edland if he thought that modern digital effects could pull off that kind of shot any better than the way it was originally done. I just don't think it would have looked very good if we did it digitally. I think it's too complicated a thing. You're talking about pulling all these walls apart and... I mean, I don't know. I just, I mean, maybe some somebody would tell me that they could do that, but I just think it would look intellectual. Now, when talking about effects, it's important to make a clear distinction between practical effects photography and optical compositing, because there is a difference. Optical compositing was so difficult 
just to get rid of a mat line. I mean, we went to the most outrageous extremes in order to create mats that would enable us to to get motion blur that 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 made it feel like it was a normal shot. And and now that we have digital compositing, I am in heaven, you know. But I I I love to to use elements and to shoot elements in the old way and and have the incredible capabilities that we have now of digital compositing and and in and in that way I'm I think that that uh were I to be in the same situation as shooting a movie like Poltergeist today it would be more far out because we would be less limited by the lugubriousness of the photographic process I mean the, the photographic process was so uh, I mean the the wedging and all of these these processes were so difficult and so time consuming and therefore expensive that you know that that uh, I was a big fan of of the digital world coming along because I didn't feel like the digital world was going to do away and I don't think it has done away with the old fashioned so called techniques it's it's augmented them and and give us the opportunity to be even more bold in approaching uh, visual problems. On a similar note, I asked Mr. Leonetti if he would change anything about the way he shot the film if he had the opportunity to do it with the image capture technologies that we have today. If you really think about it, the tools haven't changed. Lighting tools haven't changed that much. The only lighting tools that have changed a lot has been HMIs. We're still using the same kind of incandescent lighting we did uh, 50 years ago. I would not use fluorescence or anything like that. Would I change the look? Would I go from hard light to soft light? No. I'd probably still keep with the hard light. I don't think I'd change much, really. After Poltergeist, Mr. Edlin went on to supervise the visual effects for Return of the Jedi before starting his own company, Boss Films, which provided effects for Ghostbusters, 2010, Die Hard, and Multiplicity, among many others. Mr. Leonetti's career took off quickly as well, and includes many memorable films such as Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Commando, Strange Days, Star Trek First Contact, and the remake of Dawn of the Dead. Uh, One more thing. Something that stuck with me after interviewing Mr. Leonetti is how he would describe himself as a young and inexperienced cameraman, even though he turned 40 on the last day of shooting Poltergeist. It made me curious to know what kinds of lessons he might have taken away from the experience. But looking at the movie, I think it was a great team effort between all departments. And I think we had a group of people there that had some experience but weren't, you know, 30-year veterans who came up with a project that, that uh, looked pretty darn good. I don't mean only photographically, but all the effects. And, uh, again, it's a team effort, and I believe that is the great way to make a movie with a great team. And with that, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to download and listen to the American Cinematographer podcast. A portion of the audio was recorded with a generous donation of equipment provided by Coffee Sound in Hollywood, California. You can find them on the web at coffeysound.com. Additional information on the making of Poltergeist was taken from Cinefex issue number 10 from October 1982. Unfortunately, it's out of print, but you can order black and white photocopies of the article from cinefex.com. And more podcasts and interviews from American Cinematographer Magazine and the American Society of Cinematographers can be found at the ASC website at theasc.com.